0: Good evening and welcome. This is normally mining the riches of the Parsha as we find ourselves in the middle of Passover. We'll be discussing the second Yom Tov, the last two days of Pesach. Today is Thursday, April 1st, 2021. And I am so glad that you're with us. It is an honor and a pleasure to be able to be with you to study together tonight. I have three, three pieces that I would like to share with you tonight. So tomorrow night, Friday night, Shabbos, Sunday, we're about to begin the second days of Yom Tov, of Pesach. And we have two days in Israel. The entire Pesach is seven days and the last Yom Tov is one. And outside of Israel, of course, the entire Pesach is eight days and the second Yom Tov is two days so it's Shabbos and Sunday and a question that often comes up is why do we have to keep two days of Yom Tov outside of Israel? Why did we have to have two Seders? In Israel there's only one Seder. Isn't it the fact that the reason for two days is because in former times Jews did not know which day was the correct day. Well, we know what the correct day is. So it appears that the reason no longer applies. Why should we have to keep two days of Yom Tov outside of Israel? So the first answer I want to give you is make Aliyah, move to Israel. If you're living in Israel, you only have one day of Yom Tov And that's the easiest way to take care of this problem. I make this suggestion to you. I hope it for myself sometime in the future. Make Aliyah, move to Israel, only one day of Yom Tov. That shouldn't be the most important reason, but it is a side benefit. The answer for us here, though, is more complex. And I believe the reason for two days of Yom Tov Is more relevant today than ever before and I'd like to share an answer with you an approach in two layers and the first layer goes like this and it has to do with several geographic uh, uh, I'm sorry several chronological eras that goes like this in former times when the Beit HaMikdash the Holy Temple was standing in Jerusalem the beginning of each Jewish month was established by the Sanhedrin, the great court that met in the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem. And they would make that determination on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Witnesses would see the new moon. They would come to the Sanhedrin the next day and testify. And if after a cross-examination, they were found to be accurate, then the Sanhedrin would proclaim, today is Rosh Chodesh, today is the beginning of the month. This means that people never knew in advance which day Rosh Chodesh would be, because it could either be one day or the next day, because of the fact that the lunar cycle is about 29 and a half days it's not an exact number of days so since they never knew in advance which day was going to be proclaimed as Rosh Chodesh that means that for the holidays that occurred on the 15th of the month for example Pesach and Sukkos they would not know before Rosh Chodesh which day the holiday would be. So, when Rosh Chodesh was proclaimed, the Sanhedrin would send out messengers, and they would take the message of which day Rosh Chodesh was, and based on that, what would be the first day of Pesach or Sukkos? Well. The messengers would be sent out right away and they would go as far as they could go. They could usually reach all of the Jewish communities within Israel before Pesach actually started. So by the time Pesach came, people knew which day Pesach was. But they were not able to reach the faraway communities, especially The major Jewish community during the second temple period, which was in Bavel, Babylonia, which is the area between Iran and Iraq. It took longer than 15 days to get there. So Jews in those faraway places who had not yet heard what the decision was in Yerushalayim, they would observe two days because they were unsure which day was the correct first day of the holiday. A little bit later the Sanhedrin developed a communication system which was an ingenious system and it worked very very well and it went like this it worked through a series of bonfires on the top of designated mountains each one a distance from the other so on the night after the Sanhedrin proclaim Rosh Chodesh. So that's the beginning of the second day of the month. They would light a bonfire on the top of a designated mountain in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. And there would be someone a few miles away on the next mountain who would be looking for the bonfire. And when that person sees one, they would light a bonfire. The next mountain would see it they would light a bonfire and that message would go miles and miles and miles in just a short amount of time, maybe about an hour or so. Jews all the way in Bavel in Babylonia would know exactly when the correct day was. So, by the time Pesach started, Jews all over the world knew the correct date to start Pesach. And therefore, they only kept one day because they knew. Sometime later, enemies of the Jews sabotaged that system. They hacked the system and they started lighting false alert bonfires to confuse the Jews in these faraway places, and the enemies of the Jews at that time understood a deep truth, and that is, if Jews can be separated from the Jewish calendar, Jews can be separated, God forbid, from Judaism. In fact, this is a lesson that enemies of Jews knew and have known throughout history. Even in the previous century, under the Soviet Union's rule against Jews, one of the most dangerous articles to bring to a Jew in the former Soviet Union, because it was so prohibited By the Soviet authorities was a Jewish calendar because even in the previous century those who wanted to wipe out Judaism God forbid understood if you could separate a Jew from a Jewish calendar it was a very effective means to potentially cause our assimilation and eventual disappearance God forbid So, in order to avoid this terrible fate, now going back 2000 years or so, because the communication was disturbed, Jews outside of Israel once again had to observe two days of Yom Tov because they could not be sure when the actual date was. Still later, near the end of the Talmudic era, the system of establishing Rosh Chodesh by eyewitnesses halted, and a calendar was developed by which Jews knew in advance when Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of each month, would occur and when each holiday would occur this coincided with the deepening of exile of Jews all over the world and the lowering of hopes of a speedy return to Israel and redemption and rebuilding of the base Amigdash in about the year 500 or so of the common era and it was at this moment when the calendar was developed And for the first time, Jews would know in advance for certain when each holiday would be. It was at this moment that our rabbis legislated a dramatic and far-reaching decree. And that is, Jews outside of Israel must observe two days of Yom Tov and to treat the second day of Yom Tov exactly as if it was the first day. Now, I want to be clear. When they made this decree, it was possible to know in advance the actual date of the holiday. They did not make this decree because of doubt. We do not observe two days of Yom Tov because of doubt. They did this And we do this as a reminder that in an earlier era, we had to act with two days of Yom Tov because there was a doubt. They did this as a very powerful message that as long as we live outside of Israel, our future as Jews is vulnerable if we are not able to follow the Jewish calendar. In Israel, we are not as vulnerable due to the holiness of the land of Israel and due to the effect of living among the Jewish people. And those are two very good reasons to move to Israel to begin with. But outside of Israel, we need this reminder. Even today, I would say not even today, more than ever before. Because in the past, most threats that we faced were physical pogroms, violent anti Semitism, God forbid the Holocaust. Today, at present, here, that's not our main concern. But the truth is that our future is even more at risk due to assimilation, due to a lessening of Jewish education, and due to being accepted so freely into the wider society. Now, as much as we welcome this freedom and we welcome this acceptance, we have to remain on guard that our Jewish future is only assured through our connection to God and observance of mitzvahs, and if it should ever happen again, whether because of violent sabotage or because we simply do not pay attention to it, that we are not connected to the Jewish calendar, our future as Jews will once more be at risk. So that's the first layer. The second layer is we know the first day of Yom Tov is the actual date of the holiday and we know that this Shabbos is the actual seventh and final day of Pesach as it is in Israel. There's no doubt about that. But we keep the second day outside of Israel as a powerful reminder that there was a time when outside of Israel we did not know and just at the period in history when we could know the correct date outside of Israel our rabbis wanted to emphasize to us that continuing to live outside of Israel is a more general type of of not knowing not just not knowing the exact date but having a connection to Judaism outside of Israel by definition is less clear is more fuzzy it is not as sharply focused as living a Jewish life in Israel even today I would say especially today we act outside of Israel today as if we are in doubt even though the specific doubt about the calendar has been resolved but our lives as Jews are less certain outside of Israel than inside of Israel I would say this is more relevant to us than ever before, because for the first time in 2000 years in our era, we have the opportunity to live in Israel. For those of us, and I am including myself, obviously, who have not yet answered this invitation, we have to realize we are missing something vital. Our lives as Jews are fuzzy less focus. And maintaining this practice of observing two days of Yom Tov should first of all serve as an incentive to consider moving to Israel and making Aliyah, or at least making a priority of spending as much time in Israel as is possible after COVID passes. But when we observe this eighth day of Pesach while we think about how in Israel Pesach was already over and they're eating bread and it's a weekday we should think about why it is that we are still observing an extra day and heed its message because it speaks to us more loudly today than perhaps ever before. Let me share a second piece. So every Yom Tov, every festival, we recite a prayer called Halel, a prayer of praise and thanks to God for the miracle of that holiday. That is an intrinsic part of every Yom Tov. It is a mitzvah. It is an obligation of every festival to recite halel. The beginning of this holiday, Pesach, we commemorate and celebrate the exodus from Egypt. The end of the holiday, we commemorate, celebrate the splitting of the Red Sea. And we say Hallel. Every day of Pesach we recite this prayer of Hallel. But there's a unique feature for these last two days, for us two days. Yom Tov of Pesach and that is we do not say the full Hallel we only say a partial Hallel we omit two paragraphs of the Hallel now you may remember we've discussed this before the same thing applies on Rosh Chodesh the beginning of each Jewish month we recite Hallel but we omit these two paragraphs But that is for a very different reason. We discussed this once before, because Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month, is not a holiday. It's simply a reminder of, as we discussed a few minutes ago, when the next Yom Tov, when the next holiday will occur. So Hallel on Rosh Chodesh is not a halacha, it's not a requirement, it is a minhag, it's a custom. And to show that it is a custom and not a law, not obligatory, we omit two paragraphs. That's on Rosh Chodesh. But on the last two days of Pesach, it is a requirement to say Hallel, like every other Yom Tov. So if it's a requirement to say it, why do we omit two of the paragraphs? There are several answers to this question. I'd like to share with you an answer that is quoted by Rabbi Yosef Cairo, based on a Medrash, discussing the following verse, the following Pasuk. There's a Pasuk in Mishlei, in Proverbs, that says, Bin pol al tismach. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. So on those words, our rabbis in the Medrash, make the following comment. On Shabbos and here on Sunday, we celebrate, commemorate the splitting of the Red Sea. The Jews had already left Egypt, but Pyro and his army was chasing after them. They came up against the sea. They were trapped. God performed a miracle. The sea was split. The Jews were able to go through on dry land. When Paro's army went into the sea, the water came back upon them and they all drowned. Says our Rabbis in the Medrash. when that happened, Bikshu Malache HaSharez Lo marshira, the angels in heaven wanted to sing songs of praise to God that the Jewish people had been saved and the Egyptians had been drowned. God said to His angels, My creatures, human beings, are drowning in the sea. And you think it's appropriate to sing songs of joyous praise? It's not right. It's not appropriate. When your enemy falls, do not rejoice. So, on the day that we commemorate the splitting of the Red Sea, our victory, our celebration, is muted. We say the Hallel, but we shorten it. We omit two of the paragraphs. And there's an irony in that answer, because who is it that drowned at the Yamsuf Suf at the Red Sea? Well, the Torah says, and we read this in the Torah reading on Shabbos, "V'yashuvu ha'mayim, v'yachasu es proshim l'cholchel paro, haba'im achareim bayom." The waters, after they've been split for the Jewish people to go through on dry land. The waters came back together and drowned the army of Paro who was chasing after the Jewish people. In other words, this army was not at rest. This army was in the process of trying to attack us. And still, God says to his angels, it's not right to celebrate and we ourselves diminish our joy at this salvation because human beings lost their lives. Because even if they were guilty, even if they were our enemies, they're still God's creatures. They still have mothers and fathers and wives and children who will cry for them. Pain and suffering should never be a cause for joy, never. And so we reduce Hallel, tovim bayom, God says, when my creatures My human beings that I created are drowning in the sea. Is it proper for you to sing a song of joyous praise? So we shorten Hale. But we do say the song of praise as Yashir. Remember, when the Jewish people were saved, by the splitting of the Red Sea, they sang a song of praise to God, Az-Yashir Moshe as ashirazos Azos. Moshe led the Jewish people in singing this glorious song. And we read that song this Shabbos as the Torah reading. And that song of praise, we incorporate into our prayers every single day. We say the prayer Az-Yashir. So if God didn't want the angels to express joy, why do we say a song of praise when the Egyptians' army was drowned? There are a number of scholars, including Rabbi Eliezer Blach, who give the following answer, and that is that there is a distinction between angels. And humans. An angel, a Malach of God, is a purely spiritual being that exists for one mission and one purpose. Our rabbis tell us a Malach, an angel, cannot perform two tasks. A Malach can only do one mission, one task, one focus. If an angel praises, that angel cannot mourn. And if an angel mourns, that angel cannot praise. In contrast to that, a human being is capable of two conflicting emotions at the same time. It is possible for a human being to have praise for God at being saved from certain death at the hands of Pyro's army and at the same time feel sadness at the loss of life that occurred due to their drowning. We can praise that we were saved and mourn the loss of life at the same time. As human beings we are capable of that multi-layered emotion. And therefore, we sing a song of praise, we say the Hallel Prayer, but it is muted. There is a subtlety, there is an ambiguity ambiguity that exists within the potential of human emotion. Let me give you just an example of this, that we're all familiar with, but we may not always focus on this. It is a custom, a practice at a Jewish wedding. At the moment of the greatest joy of this couple and everyone who is watching is filled with joy for this newly married couple. And we break a glass. Why do we break a glass? We remember that Jerusalem is not yet rebuilt. We remember that there is still sadness within the world. We remember that our joy is not complete at this moment, so we break a glass. And that's a tremendous lesson because a person, a human being, needs to be able to rejoice even when the joy is not perfect, even when there are some things that are not right, that are not good, that there are reasons to mourn. We have the capability of doing both at the same time. And it is a very important refinement of character to balance joy and sadness. When others suffer, even our enemies, it is not right to rejoice. We can commemorate, we can be grateful That we have been saved. We can praise God for what he did for us, but we should not be happy. A young man once came to a Rebbe during the time of the Tsars in Russia, and he had been drafted into the army. And in those times, to be drafted into the a czar's army meant a person would have no future contact with the Jewish people and no opportunity to observe mitzvot, especially no ability to eat kosher food. And so this young man came to his rebbe, to his rabbi, and he said, "I've been drafted into the czar's army. There's no way to get out of it. If there's nothing else to eat." Can I eat pork? If I don't eat it, I will die. Isn't it true that all the mitzvos of the Torah, except for three cardinal sins, are set aside to preserve life? What should I do if I have to eat pork in order to stay alive? And the Rebbe said to him, If there is nothing else to eat and you need it to remain alive, then eat the pork but don't suck the bones don't suck the bones saying full Hallel on this yumtov. that would be like sucking the bones we appreciate what God did for us we don't enjoy that others lost their lives because of it. Let me share with you one last piece. So on Pesach, we commemorate that God delivered us from slavery to freedom. The first day of Pesach is the anniversary of our leaving Egypt, the Exodus from Egypt, and we respond with the Pesach Seder. Every year we tell the story and we act out the rituals. On the seventh day of Pesach, and for us outside of Israel, the seventh and the eighth day of Pesach, we commemorate that God delivered us from death to life. On the seventh day of Pesach, we would certainly have been killed by Paro's army as we stood trapped against the sea had God not miraculously split the sea for us in order for us to pass through on dry land and then drown the Egyptians who were following us as we just discussed. And we respond today as we did then with the song of praise, Az Yashir, the song of praise that the Jewish people sang, thanking God for saving us from certain death. Last week, at the Seder, we reminded ourselves that this is not just an ancient historical event, but rather, b'chal in every generation, there are those who rise up against us to try to exterminate us in every generation, including our own. God intervenes in history, sometimes more clearly, sometimes less clearly, sometimes selecting different intermediaries and strategies in order to preserve and protect the Jewish people. B'chol dar badar the story of Pesach, both the exodus from Egypt and the splitting of the Red Sea. Although the exact details happen once in history, but the overall message is something that is repeated throughout Jewish history. Last week I shared with some of you a story about Rabbi Herschel Schachter of blessed memory, not to be confused with the Rabbi Herschel Schachter, he should live and be well, who is the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of Yeshiva University, who is a great authority in Jewish law, who I often quote to you. But the other Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who passed away a number of years ago, a much older gentleman, he was the first rabbi ordained by Rabbi Yosef Salavechik in 1941. He was a rabbi of a synagogue in the Bronx in New York for over 50 years. He was one of the most prominent modern Orthodox rabbis in the United States. I must tell you personally, Rabbi Herschel Schachter of Blessed Memory was very important to me. For many years, he was the head of rabbinic placement for the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America. He gave me career advice, he was a mentor to me, he shared with me invaluable advice and support at a number of crossroads in my career, and he did the same for hundreds of other rabbis. Rabbi Schachter is well known as the first Jewish chaplain to reach Buchenwald on April eleventh, 1945, just about one hour after General George Patton and the 3rd U.S. Army liberated the notorious concentration camp. When Rav Schachter came to Buchenwald, he ended up staying there for several months tending to survivors. I shared a story story last week about a service that he led, a minion that he held in Buchenwald for those who had survived the Holocaust, the first minion that they were able to participate in since the Holocaust. He actually stayed and helped to resettle thousands of Jews after the war. And he told the story that happened on the first day. On that first day when he came to Buchenwald and he was in total shock as was almost everyone else. It seemed to him at first that there was no one alive left in that concentration camp. And he saw a young American lieutenant who knew his way around. And the rabbi said to him, are there any Jews here? Has anyone survived? And this lieutenant led him to a certain area, like a smaller camp within the larger Buchenwald concentration camp, where there was a barracks and it was a filthy, horrible barracks. And there were Jews lying, almost dead from hunger and disease. And this rabbi walks in, and of course, he's wearing a uniform. He is a chaplain in the US Army. And they were afraid of him. They see somebody coming in with a the uniform, they were afraid of him. of so Shachter yelled out to them, Shalom Aleichem Yidin! He wanted them to know that he was a rabbi, that he was Jewish, that they were free, that the Holocaust had ended, that Buchenwald was now in American control. They could hardly believe what they were hearing and seeing, but Rav Shachter would run from group to group, Shalom Aleichem Yidin! And Jews started to gather around him and to follow him. And as Rav Shakhtar was walking, he passed a mound of corpses, Jewish dead bodies piled up on the ground. Just a nightmare. And he noticed a flicker of movement. He couldn't exactly tell what it was, but when he looked closer, he saw there was a small young boy who was hiding behind this mound of corpses of dead bodies. Now, years later, this child would recall Seeing Rabbi Schachter, he didn't know who he was and seeing this man in an American US army uniform with a look of horror on his face, seeing the terrible devastation around him. And the child would later recall that he was afraid of this man because here's another man in a uniform and he already recognized the uniforms of the Nazis and the SS and the Gestapo and all of a sudden there's a new kind of man in a uniform and this little boy thought to himself it's some kind of new enemy and he was afraid. Later Rabbi Schachter said he saw A pair of eyes looking out from amongst a pile of corpses and with tears streaming down his cheeks he went over to the boy and spoke to him in Yiddish and he said to him what is your name and the child said my name is Lulik How old are you?" And this little boy who actually was seven years old, but he looked younger because he was so hungry and sick. This little boy says to Rav Shakhtar, what difference does it make how old I am? I'm older than you. So Rav Shakhtar said to him, what do you mean you're older than me? This boy says, you, you're crying like a child. I haven't cried in years. So which one of us is really older? Rav Schachter eventually discovered nearly a thousand orphaned children in Buchenwald. And he and other rabbis and other individuals helped arrange for their transport, some to France, some to Switzerland, some to Israel. General Eisenhower was so horrified at what was found in Buchenwald and other places he gave the following order nearby Buchenwald about 10 kilometer away. There was a small town called Weimar. I may not be pronouncing it correctly. W E R W E I W E I M A R. Eisenhower ordered that every man, woman and child in this German town, be forced to tour Buchenwald. U.S. soldiers led them in and showed them the crematoria, showed them the dead bodies. Some of these German people fainted. Many of them couldn't take it and they tried to cover their eyes, but the soldiers forced them to see the destruction the horror that the Nazis had perpetrated and they said to them look don't ever forget what you see here today tell your children and your grandchildren look at what Hitler did to mankind and after All of these people, these German individuals, had toured Buchenwald, they were required to gather in a central gathering place. And Rabbi Schachter spoke to them. He stood on top of an army truck. And as he stood on top of the truck, he was holding the hand of this little boy, Lulik, this little boy. And he said to all of these assembled people, he said, this child was your greatest enemy. This is what you had to destroy. And their faces were stiff and frozen and ashamed to have been part of this devastation. And Rabbi Shachter continued his speech to them and he said, this child, pointing to this little boy, Lulik, this child will be a witness to your persecutions. And this child will also be a witness that over one million Jewish children were murdered. That child, Lulik, grew up to become Rabbi Yisrael Mer Lau, the chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel. As we relive and commemorate the splitting of the Red Sea this weekend, and we relive and commemorate that God descended into history in order to save the Jewish people from certain death. Let's also remember that in our generation, Bechal dar in every generation, including ours, Omdim Oleynu Lechalo Senu, there are those who rise up against us to destroy us. And God delivered us, delivers us from their hands. The redemption from Egypt is not just a past event. It is an ongoing, current, present event and will continue into the future. That is the deepest understanding we must have as we commemorate the past and look forward to the future. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a joyous and happy Yom Tov for the last days of Pesach. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.